Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. cross of our Lord. You could become so familiar with something that you could be desensitized to it. We see the cross all the time, whether it's here in church, out there in the narthex, top of the building, etc., etc. But people have different views of the cross. To some, it's a piece of jewelry to adorn the ears or the neck. To some, it's a simple icon that they used to venerate in some cases, worship. To some, it's an amulet. They put it in their window, at their home, or above their bed, or sometimes in the car, to ward off evil, as if it contains some supernatural powers or abilities. The Apostle Paul had some things to say about how the cross is viewed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Look at these verses. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews stumbled over the cross and the gospel. And stumbling block actually means it was a trap or a snare. They tripped over it. They couldn't understand how their holy Messiah could come and be accursed and die on a tree like a criminal. And they can't get past that. Then you've got the Greeks who are intelligent individuals that believe in intellectualism. And the word foolishness actually comes from the word moria. And that's where we get our word moron from. And that's why it says foolishness because to the Greeks... The cross and the gospel message is moronic foolishness. And to believe in it, you'd have to be a moron. Because you see, it doesn't line up with intellectualism. But there's another group, those who believe in it. And to those who believe in it, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God, because that's where the devil was defeated. And that's where the kingdom of darkness was brought down. The wisdom of God, because that's where God outsmarted, outwitted the devil himself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at these verses. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God outwitted the devil, praise God, outsmarted the devil. And the devil 
basically turned it on itself. We believe it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Amen. There was a minister in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he was accustomed to going into the prison and ministering to those that were inmates there in the prison. And in this one situation, he ministered to some fellow who was noted as the worst, the roughest, the toughest inmate that they had in that facility. He was so rough that they had to shackle his hands and his feet no matter where he went. Well, this man finally gave his heart to Jesus. And when the pastor went in this other time, he asked him if he could be baptized in water. And he said, of course. So they made plans to go there with some elders of the church and get this fellow baptized in water. The only place they could do it would be out in the exercise yard where they had a trough out there. And so this guy comes out shackled with guards, highly guarded, shackled, hands, feet, takes him over to this trough where there's water and they could baptize him in that trough. When they get there, the minister says, you think just for a moment you could take those shackles off his feet and his wrists? And the guard says, absolutely not. So just to show you what they were dealing with. So the pastor, the elders, they get him under the water. And as he gets under the water, the pastor says something like, buried with Christ. And when they bring him up out of the water and go to stand him up, He's about to say, risen to walk in the newness of life. But he can't get those words out. Because the moment he says, risen to, the shackles fall off. His hands, his feet. And all the guards are standing there looking. And the one guard gave his heart to Jesus and got baptized in that same water. Right on the spot. The gospel is the power of of God that saves, that heals, that delivers, that sets free, that makes whole. It is the good news, praise God. Yes, it took a death to accomplish it, but thank God that was then and this is now. Amen. And we're on this side of Calvary. In studying the subject of the cross, there's a true message that's behind it. And I want to share a little bit quickly with that, about that tonight. We're not going to read Matthew 15, 20 through 39, but we're going to take a few of those verses out of there and share some thoughts about the true message of the cross. What is it? Number one, it's a message of torment. Look at the verse in verse 20 of Matthew, or Mark 15. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, put on his own clothes on him, and led him out to do what? To crucify him. When you hear the word crucify, you think of torment, torture. You think of pain, suffering, and you think of death. As a matter of fact, it's excruciating. And the word excruciate, this word, ex means out from or out of. Cruciate, if, if you look at that, look that in the, I believe it's the Latin, cruciate, they say cruciate, cruciate is how they say it. It means the cross. And so the cross became associated with anything that causes excruciating pain. So the mention of the cross is one of excruciating pain. Jesus suffered physically, emotionally, mentally, 
and in every way you could possibly think of on that cross. It all came on him. It was a painful experience, which we saw just in the video, and that doesn't even do justice to it. But secondly, it's also a message of tragedy. It's tragic what he had to go through. Let's read the verses first, 26 to 32. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the, thief, the chief priests mocking him said among themselves with the scribe, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. What a scene. When you think about he came to save those people. He came to redeem those people. He came to reconcile them to God. But yet he came to his own and his own received him not. It is a tragedy. It's tragic for a couple of reasons. First of all, these leaders attitude towards Jesus. He is their Messiah. He is their heaven sent Messiah. And he has come to set them free. He has come to liberate them. But they are so blinded by their religious ideas that they can't see it. And so they walk around and circle the cross and they revile him. They speak evil of him. They blaspheme him with words, with such disrespect and dishonor as he's right there. Remember he said to them, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I wanted to take you under my wings. I wanted to hold you, embrace you, and bless you, but you would not. You've turned your back. You've walked away. How tragic. But then also it shows the true condition of the heart of fallen man. How nasty can you get? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses. And you hath he quickened or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Think about that. Every one of us here, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Wow. The children of wrath. You realize that any good person who is alive on this planet, you could be the most wonderful individual in all the world, but if you don't know Christ, you're a child of wrath. And we just talked about the wrath of God, how, how one day it's going to be unleashed upon this entire planet. Who wants to be a child of wrath when you can be a child of almighty God? Amen. It's tragic, the condition of a man's heart. And you know what? One's reaction to the cross really reveals the condition of a man's heart. You can stumble over it. You can call it moronic foolishness. Or you can say, oh, it's the power of God to save a sin-sick soul. I thank God I've been saved by the blood. How about you? Number three, this is powerful. 
It is a message of transfer. Look at verses 33 through 37, Mark 15. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calls Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let alone let us see whether Elias will come down and take, come and take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. What took place during that dark time is something that you and I probably won't even understand until we get on the other side in glory. A transfer took place. A major transfer took place. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 6. God was laying on him during that dark time the iniquity of us all. If we could even begin to grasp this or understand this, all the sin that ever was and ever will be was heaped on him, transferred from us to him. This is really the, the sad part about being lost. A person who is lost will be lost needlessly. There is no reason to suffer the wrath of God throughout eternity. Why? Because God Almighty laid on him the iniquity of every single one of those that will spend their eternity in the realms of darkness. On that cross, God heaped on him sin, sickness, disease, the curse, anxiety, worry, fear, mental anguish, laid on him flaws, failures, anything you could name, all that you can think of, addictions and everything else. And God poured it into his being. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, for he hath made him to be sin for us. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Look at the transfer here, that we would be made the righteousness of God in Christ. God made him to be sin. Think about it. He who was sinless was made to be sin. He never sinned, but he was made to be our sin substitute. Matter of fact, he took our place. He died our death, he suffered our hell, and he paid our debt. Every single one of us, he took your place. He died your death. He suffered your hell, and he paid your sin debt. That's why when you accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, God gets out his big rubber stamp and marks you with the blood of Jesus paid in full. Can you say amen? Paid in full. Your sin debt's been paid in full. And so is mine. Thank God for it. And everyone who receives by grace salvation, they have a transfer. God transfers the righteousness of Christ to our account. Look in the book of Romans. See, you can't do this for yourself. I can't do this for myself but someone did it for us. You can't pay your sin debt. You'll never be able to pay your sin debt. And being fully persuaded, this is uh, talking about Abraham, what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, who was raised again, for what? Our justification. 
That means it's just as if we never sinned. When God looks down upon the circle of the earth and he sees you and he sees me, he sees people who are righteous in Christ, justified, holy, without blemish, without spot, blameless, sinless, masterpieces. And the one who crafted us is Jesus. You missed a great place to shout. Did you hear that? He sees you holy, righteous, without fault, without blame, without blemish, a masterpiece by his design. And that's who we are. Not by any effort of our own other than saying yes to Jesus. And the beauty of it is this. He doesn't make you serve him. But when he enters you, you want to serve him. And if you ever lose that fire of service, then go back and take another dip in the blood. Get yourself filled with the Holy Ghost over again and let the fires of God burn in your bones. Now, those who reject Christ, they needlessly suffer the wrath of God and they will do so throughout eternity. Not because of anything that they did, but because of what they didn't do. And what they didn't do was make Jesus Christ the Lord of their lives. Now, look at uh, verses 37 and 38, because it's also a message of triumph. Mm. Not just torment, not just tragedy, not just transfer, but triumph. It's hard to imagine the cross would be a place of triumph. But it is. There are three things. You could say three Enemies that we suffer, that we experience in life. Number one, Satan coming against us. Number two, sin coming against us and the reality of eternal separation. And no matter who you are, you face those three enemies. But look at these verses in 37 and 38. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. You know what that signified? All those years, Matt had no approach to God. All those years since Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the garden and they were removed from that place of intimacy with God. Man could never get back to that place of fellowship with God because there was no relationship with God. And so God, throughout all the years, showed them there would be a way and there'd be a time when that way would be made open once again. It took a lot. Took a lot of work on his part to accomplish the goal. In the Old Testament, sacrificial lambs were offered up. High priests could go in once a year and get close, and that was about it. And he better have the proper sacrifice or it wouldn't look good for him. But that was once a year on the Day of Atonement. But you know what? Jesus ripped the veil from top to bottom. And that veil that separated God from man and man from God is no longer in existence. The way to the holiest of holies is the blood of the Lamb. The road's been paved with the blood of Jesus. And whosoever will can come freely and drink the fountain, from the fountain of the waters of life. By the blood of the Lamb, we have an audience with God. Our enemy has been defeated. Look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. On that cross, our enemy was defeated. 
For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself uh, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him. Don't ever say the devil's tough ever again. He might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The only way to see Satan is as a defeated foe. Defeated. He's a roaring lion with no teeth. He is defeated. The only way he's going to be victorious is if we give him the right to be so in our lives. Jesus gave us his name, which is above every other name, that the mention of that name, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that things are beings in heaven, things and beings on earth, things are beings under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we've been given a right to use that name, and the very first thing he said in Mark 16 was, use my name to do what? Cast out devils. Deal with demonic influences and forces that try to destroy people's lives. Number two, sin. Look in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. Actually, you have to read the whole chapter, but it's, suffice it to say this. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Why is it so easy for believers to identify with being a sinner? I even hear Christians say, I'm just a sinner. Saved by grace. Nah, nah. You're a saint. Not an ink. You're a saint. You just didn't learn that yet. So that, why? By, one obedient, by the obedience of one shall many be made sinners. Paupers. Mm -mm. Make what? Made what? Did he make you righteous? Are you righteous then? Are you what he made you? See, we talk about what he did. He made us righteous. And so we should speak, speak of ourselves as being righteous. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. Sin has been dealt with. It's no longer an issue. Now, you know, you may fall along the way. Sure, we all fall along the way. But you know what? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the last one, and this is so important. You know why? Because this is temporal. Temporal. Short-lived. If you could live to be 100 years old, 120 years old, it's short-lived. If you live to be like Methuselah, 969 years old, it's still short-lived compared to the backdrop of eternity, right? So all that we see around this world that we live in, it's going to fade. It's going to go away. It's going to be renovated by fire. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Wherefore, remember... That you being in a time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision. In the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. We were hopeless. That was then. Everybody say but now. But now. Oh hallelujah. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He brought it down. He made one new man. In Christ, we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
In Christ, we have access to the throne of Almighty God, the throne of grace. In Christ, all heaven and all that's in it belongs to us. He's given us the keys to the kingdom, the Bible said. Think about that. My Father's good pleasure to give you the keys to the kingdom. And finally, it's a message of testimony. The cross testifies to the greatest love story that has ever been told anywhere, any place, any time. Let's read the verse, verse 39. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What a message. Look in the book of John 15 and then Romans, and we'll close. But look, look at these verses. Greater love has no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Look at Romans 5. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Roman centurion saw something he had never seen before when he crucified. He really watched how many people be crucified. This is the son of God. He was convicted and gave his heart to the Lord. You see, the testimony of God's love and the cross of Christ provides salvation for every member of Adam's family, no matter who you are. And notice what it says. He died for us. Do we take it all in? Do we really understand it? If you don't mind, as we close, I just want to give you a little bit of the story. God saw the dilemma. He knew we were hopeless and helpless and couldn't do anything to save ourselves. He needed somebody to intervene, to be our substitute, to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. He leaned over to his son and said, son, will you go? And Jesus said, I'm on it. I'm paraphrasing. I'm on it. But you know what, uh, Father, I need a body. You've got to make a body, provide a body for me. No problem, I got Mary down there. Well, sent Gabriel down there to visit her. Okay. He leaves the glory world behind. Can we even picture that? He's living in the lap of luxury. And he's going to leave all that behind. Why? For you, for me. But it requires him robing himself in flesh. Now that's a dilemma. Because now he has to go into the womb of a woman. So that his blood is untainted with the Adamic sin nature's blood. But he says, I'll still do it. He's got to go through childbirth. Imagine that. And where he was born wasn't Children's Hospital or McGee or anything like that. But he did it for us. He grew up. He got educated. And at the age of 30, he got baptized and said, it's time to fulfill all righteousness. 
the first thing he does is goes into the temple after his 40 days of temptation and turns over the table of the money changers and says, you've, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Game is on. He's come to clean house. He's come to make the Father's house a house of purity, prayer, power, and perfected praise. Not a den of thieves. He lived like no man lived. He walked the shores of Galilee. He turned water into wine. He healed the nobleman's son. The centurion's uh, worker, soldier, something that was his son as well. The woman with the issue of blood touches his garment and she's healed. He's doing things that people had never seen done before. He opens up the eyes of the blind. He even raises the dead, cleanses the lepers, calms the stormy sea. He lives, speaks, and does like no man had ever done before. But then he's willing to lay down his life and suffer not just crucifixion, because you and I could never see this. But when he was made sin for us on that cross, when it turned dark from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and all the darkness that was there on the outside, the darkness of sin, separation, and death entered on the inside to him, and he was separated from his father and says, Why have you forsaken me? And he descends to the bowels of the earth with the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God rest upon him. And when it seems like as if there's no hope in the world. All hope is gone. The Savior's gone. The Redeemer's gone. All of Israel's hope was supposedly in this Redeemer, but he's gone. But praise God, that was Friday. And Sunday was right around the corner. And when the Father looked over the banisters of heaven and he saw him in that condition and said, It is enough. You've suffered enough. My righteous servant will justify many. Those that would believe would be justified. And on that day, he raised him up from the dead. He emerged from the grave. He had his blood, praise God, and said, Mary, don't touch me. Don't touch me, Mary. I've got to ascend to my father, your father, my God, and your God. He ascended on high. He offered up his blood. He obtained eternal redemption for us. He came back down to the earth. He showed himself alive to 500 at one time. And then finally ascended on high. He had a coronation service. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And praise God, he obtained eternal redemption for every single one of us. That's the redemption story. Now he says, go tell it on the mountain. And whosoever will, let him come. Praise God. Death does not have the final say. Make him your Savior. Make him your Lord. And praise God, your eternity is secure. Let's all stand and let's praise the King of kings and praise the Lord of lords. Let's magnify the Lord of glory. Let's voice our praise on high. Let's give him all the glory and honor he deserves. Hallelujah.